Check, check. Cool. Awesome. Well, it's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Um, I believe last week uh, David was teaching and was finishing up uh, Acts chapter 17 in the Sermon on Mars Hill uh, is what he did. So you can turn to, we're going to start in Acts chapter 18 this morning. Can everyone, anyone who was here last week, maybe try and give me a, a summary or a little bit about what was talked about last week? What happened at the end of Acts chapter 17, uh, this so-called Sermon on Mars Hill? What was going on? What, what did Paul say? What did he do? Anyone have any kind of memory of what wrapped up there? <clears throat> It's a fun trick because I don't know who was actually here last week, so I can. <laughs> we got. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was in Athens and he reasoned with them the way that they like to reason things out in Athens, right? We can think of Athens as being a very academic city at the time. It's where philosophy had exploded. At the time, they liked to discuss new ideas. It says that they literally liked to just sit around and talk about new things. Now, it wasn't legal to bring in new religion at the time. That was anti-Rome. But by talking about this unknown God that they had a statue to, Paul found a way to kind of loophole his way in and talk about Christianity by using something that they already had, saying, well, you have a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God, and he starts telling about the God of what we now call the God of the Bible, Yahweh and Christ, and, and what uh, this faith is all about. And yeah, you're right, Rose, some people believed and some didn't. And at the end of chapter 17, we see that Paul went out of their midst, in verse 33, uh, left Athens, says some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the, wow, Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them, which is really giving us this picture that there was multiple people, not even just the philosophers who were engaging, but maybe some of their families and other people who were in the area were coming to faith in Christ. And that leads us up to chapter 18. So after these things, that's why we got to go look back at the context, after he finished teaching and talking in Athens, he went to Corinth. Now, what do we know about Corinth? Does anyone know? What can anyone tell me about Corinth? Anything. Can be literally anything you know about Corinth. Yeah, yeah, and there was believers for sure. There would be, in fact. We know from that, that leads us, I guess, to the point that Paul wrote letters, right? Paul wrote letters to Corinth. That's maybe a bit of an obvious one. He wrote some letters. What sort of things were they struggling with in those letters? Does anyone remember? Some of the big things, especially in 1 Corinthians. The issues that Paul is addressing. You can probably just think about what Paul addresses other places and just take a guess. But Well, Corinth was really known, and I know we say this probably about a lot of cities, but Corinth was known for its immorality. Specifically, it's sexual immorality. They had a temple there to Aphrodite, 
Um, Corinth was an, an interesting place in its geography. So Corinth is a little ways away from Athens, but you can kind of almost picture Corinth kind of like the Panama of Greece in some ways, of that area. Corinth was at this point where there was sea on both sides that came together at this narrow point. And in Corinth, around this time, they actually had a system where they could transport goods or even smaller boats or ships across the landmass on rolling logs from one side to the other, and it would save sailors hundreds of miles going around this big peninsula. If you go back in your notes, actually, um, if anyone has them, I'll try and sh hold it up at least a little bit. It's, I sh if I was thinking, I would have put it up on the screen. But it's hard to see. You probably can't anyways. But there's a whole chunk of Greece that could be avoided going around through treacherous seas and islands if the captains came into Corinth and allowed their ships to be taken over this landmass. And so what that means is being this major port city where lots of things happened, you had people from all different walks of life, sailors, you have merchants, you have philosophers coming down from Athens, you have people trying to transport, and really this huge blend of cultures, which is why, in one sense, it's a great place to maybe start up some new religious beliefs, but on the other hand, there was all sorts of immorality going on. There was all sorts of false gods being worshipped, all sorts of temples and worship sites. It was not a place known for its morality. In fact, all the way from back in the 5th century BC, it was used almost like a verb. There was a word in Greek to, to Corinthianize, meant to engage in, in debaucherous living, to, to actually be sexually immoral. They would use words like to Corinthianize or like the Corinthians. We can sort of think of it as, you know, Paul going from, uh, one scholar says, kind of going from Athens to Corinth would be like going from Boston to Las Vegas. You know, a, a thriving university town all about academia and philosophy, then going to Vegas where anything goes, what happens here stays here. We worship ourselves, we worship whoever we want, do whatever we want, and no one cares because we're here in Corinth. Um, so that was kind of the reputation of the place that Paul is going to. And I think that's really important for us to know going into the context of this section. So verse 2, after these things, so sorry, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them because he was of the same trade and stayed with them while and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So Paul, coming into Corinth, into this city that's known for its revelry, for its known for its debaucherous living, he comes in and finds people that he can connect with. He says, it says here that they were of the same trade. They were tent makers. In our time, we might think of that more as like leather workers. They would make tents, but they would work with leather in a lot of different ways. So he found people that had similar interest and knowledge to him. We got to remember Paul was a rabbi. And at this time, it wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to take up a trade to support their ministry. You know, it wasn't something that you would do. You wouldn't do ministry and preach to earn funds you would fund your ministry by taking up a trade. And so Paul worked with leather, and he was working with them and funding his ministry. 
he lived with them. Um, if you look in your notes, it talks about the idea that it would be very common to have your shop downstairs and live above. So he's probably living with them, working with them, engaging together. And of course, we know from some of Paul's other letters, and even later on here in Acts, that Aquila and Priscilla became pretty prominent in his ministry. They joined him for some of his missionary journeys. They obviously became believers if they weren't already, um, and joined him in that. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. What, what's similar about this line and what might be a bit different? What do we, so he's funding his ministry, he's living with these people, working in a trade, reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and Greeks, trying to persuade them. What do we think about with regards to how Paul has been doing ministry? Yeah, I find this one really interesting. And I don't know that this is necessarily the first time that it says this. I won't make that claim. But we know that when Paul went into a new city, he was always going to the Jews first, right? He was going to the synagogues and reasoning with them. And I think it's interesting that this one, coming out of his interaction in Athens, where he's reasoning with philosophers, he comes into Corinth, this terrible city, yet huge metropolis, but terrible city. And he goes to the Jews in the synagogues, but he's also reasoning with the Greeks. He's full-on engaged in both halves of the mission at this point. That goes back to Acts 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Acts 10 is, is Peter, right? But then, yes, but Paul... No, but no, but you're right. No, the, the Jerusalem Council has happened at this point. They've had the discussion. Yes, the mission is not just to Jews. It is to Greeks. And yet, I, it, Paul here always starts with the Jewish people because that's who the Messiah was for, right? They were the ones who were expecting it. He had, I'm sure, I just think from a, a pragmatic sense even, it would probably be easier, quote-unquote, to reason with people who were expecting something rather than people who have no grid for it whatsoever. To go to the Jews and say, the Messiah you've been expecting for generations, it's this guy. His name was Jesus. He died for you. And then to also go to the Greeks and say, as he did in Mars Hill, like, you worship an unknown God, it's this God. Right? He's, he's finding mutual ground with them to share the gospel. I'm, I, not that I'm aware of, just so I can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was more, again, we know that there was caution, it's brought up multiple times within the Roman Empire of introducing gods that were above the governance, or above Caesar, or introducing new uh, religious belief systems. So I imagine, I would guess for Paul it was just, the, the practical, like this is the, the Messiah of the Jews. Jesus came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. In a way, that's how Jesus did it. 
and even we think back to the very beginning of, of Acts, right? That call to arms, it's uh, to Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and beyond, right? To the ends of the earth. So he's almost following that pattern in how he does ministry as well. Reasoning with the people who it's for. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's going to become, I mean, that has been really important up to this point, and it's going to continue to be really important because as we've seen throughout the book, as Paul is traveling, even sometimes with Peter, the Jewish people aren't always stoked about that, right? They're not excited about that. In fact, it's often them who are chasing Paul out of cities with rocks. They're not, they think he's blaspheming. The same reason they killed Jesus, right? They're, they hate that he is claiming that he knows the Messiah and that they are wrong. And, you know, we got to remember, like, Peter himself was telling people, remember, the Christ that you killed. I mean, he's accusing them. You did this. You missed out. You missed it. I imagine, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's super important that he's going to the synagogues because they need to know the message, and yet, for the most part, they're a lot of the ones that are not receiving it. And we're going to see that specifically in this chapter coming out. It's very important, absolutely. Uh, verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, this makes it super clear, right? He, so he left Timothy and Silas behind uh, when he came from Berea. When he went down to Athens, he left them and left word back in 17, sorry, chapter 17, verse 15, uh, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. Um, so he was traveling and he was waiting for his friends here. And when they came, it's very interesting, he began at that time devoting himself completely to the word in contrast to what he was doing at the beginning of the chapter, which is working in his trade and then going to engage in the synagogues. At this time, he completely devoted himself to ministry. Why do we, why do we think that might be? What changed? You got, you got helpers now. Mm -hmm. and, and you can let them do some of the work. Sure, might share the load a little bit. It's probably encouraging to see his friends. I think it's interesting, and this is just theorizing a little bit, but um, some scholars would theorize that Silas during this time maybe went to Philippi and brought to Paul at this point the gift that's talked about in the book of Philippians, the financial gift. So maybe he was relieved of some of his financial burden at this point because Silas brought with him the gift from the Philippians, perhaps. We believe also, you know, Timothy was likely spending some time in Thessalonica at this point and bringing a progress report on how that church was doing. We know Paul wrote the books or the letters to the Thessalonians while he was in Corinth, and so, you know, you got one person bringing money, you got another person bringing good news and encouragement of how a church is growing. And, I mean, that's just, that's just good motivation there, right? Your work is paying off. The, the hours that you spent reasoning with these people, that you spent preaching to these people, it's paying off in these other places like Philippi, who want to support you financially, and Thessalonica, who are growing in their faith. 
I think that's, that's really encouraging, that he's able to now feel freed by whatever reason to step into ministry full-time. I think what a, what a gift for Paul. And he talks about that in, in his letters and other plays, feeling, you know, being able to do what he feels called to do in this way. It says in 5, uh, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Again, emphasizing, as we were just talking about, really trying to hammer home to the Jewish people, Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 6, though, things take a turn, as you were kind of alluding towards Tamara. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. What do we think of with regards to that verse? Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. That, that was in the past too when Jesus said send them out with the disciples to say the town accepts you or not accept you you will shake off the dust off you and yeah, shake off your sand shake the dust off your sandals basically just following that too and just after Christ was betrayed and put before um, Pilate as to a choice between him or Barabbas hmm Hmm. Interesting. Does it not show just his, his great frustration with the people? Oh, yeah. He just lost it, <laughs> but he overcomes it and continues on his mission. Yeah. I mean, what a demonstration of Paul's humanity yeah. here. In some ways, that he is frustrated. That's, what I, that's the picture I get as well, Rick. It's this idea. Man, he's trying so hard. He's probably, again, the good news I'm sure that he received from Paul or from Timothy and Silas has got to then be reinforced. Like, it's working elsewhere. Like, what is wrong with you people? How come you can't see what I'm bringing? And again, we don't want to read too much into the text, but he's frustrated. They're not listening. And so he shakes out his garments. It's the idea of the same. Yeah, you're right, Alice. It's very similar in the idea of shaking the dust off your sandals. Like, I don't even want the dust of your your dead skin cells, the dust around you to be on me because you have rejected. And again, notice here very clearly, it's not about the rejecting of Paul, but they resisted and blasphemed. Like, that's a big word. They are, they are saying negative things about Christ, about God. They are, they are not just saying, we don't believe you or tell us more, we don't want to hear from you, but they're blaspheming. And I think that's what brings up the frustration. Not only are they not listening, but they're attacking the God of whom he's preaching. Like, that's a big, a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know he's yeah. Not true, but he was, he was the that was Because, but I think that's why he's so 
It's his own people. It's his, his flesh and blood, right? It's the people he, he wants them to have the experience that he's had. I was just talking with someone about this yesterday, the idea that, you know, when we've found the truth or when we've grown in our experience or in our understanding of things, we want that for those that we love as well, do we not? We, we want those closest to us to understand what we understand. We want them to, to know the truth, to feel God's love, to feel his grace. We want them to grow the way that we're growing. And sometimes that can be frustrating because it can seem like we're putting expectations on others that, you know, based on their own conscience and our conscience and what that looks like. But yeah, his, it's his people. He's Jewish. He wants them to know that Christ came to die for them. And yet they blaspheme him. They, they tear him down. And so he shakes the dust off of his clothing. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And I think you're right, Rose. He was given as the prophet or the apostle to, uh, not the prophet, sorry, the apostle to the Gentiles. But I think what this points to is the ways that God is sovereign even in the midst of fallen humanity. God uses the, the Jewish rejection to push Paul in that direction. He uses the sin of blasphemy. He uses the brokenness of these people to accomplish still his perfect will. As you said, I was going around to all these other cities, writing all these letters, accomplished through sinful humanity. He, he uses our problems to make his success in some ways. That's a really good question. Anyone else who's wiser than I have a, an answer to that? Their tradition became their law. Hmm. Their became their law. And so they ended up getting focused more on their traditions and the, the, the ways that they had done things for centuries than caring about uh, the God that they claimed to save or to serve, sorry, in some ways. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was not as much as he. We can point to now in hindsight all the the prophecies that he that Jesus fulfilled. He was not what they were expecting. He wasn't that warrior king riding in on a white horse to free them from the Roman oppressors, right? He was the one who. Yeah, he came and died. Even we see his own followers on the road after he is resurrected, saying, "We thought he was the Christ." but they killed him. So like, even that idea did not comprehend with them. And I think, I think, too, at this point, I mean, I think we can be, I want to be cautious in how I say this, I think we can be really hard on the Jewish people of this time, but it, was, it would be a hard thing to accept, I think, in some ways, too, that someone comes in and claims to be the Son of God. I think there would be a, a wariness in your heart. Um, I think, you know, you've believed this thing for centuries, this this. This is your family. This is your everything. These are the promised people. This is the people of covenant that God had been establishing. And God had been silent for years, centuries. 
and then someone shows up and claims to be the son of God, I think that would be a big deal, even I think in our society today, if someone showed up and started saying they had new revelation, I think we would rightly be you know, rejecting of that because we believe that God's word is, is holy and perfect. But I think there would have been some, I think there's times when I, I guess I relate to the, the perspective of being skeptical or, or finding it hard to believe certain things. I'm sure we all can in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, denominations. Yeah, that's a really good point, Christine. It's it's so easy as sinful humans to miss the point, to miss what's right in front of us, to to struggle to grasp or to engage with things that are right in front of us. Uh, but they were looking for like a king, like a physical king, mm-hmm. to sit on a throne with somebody you crowned him with, that would be Solomon. So they were not looking for that spiritual um, leader. They were more looking for a physical person to overthrow the Roman, to be our king. So, yeah. And what irony, as we were learning about in the book of Matthew, that... Jesus came offering them that kingdom and they still reject it because it wasn't what they were looking for and, and for so many reasons beyond that. Showed up. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, and we think it's so easy. I don't know. I don't want to put everyone in the same bubble as me, but have we not all had that thought of like, oh, if Jesus showed up, if I was there, I would have believed. I like to think I would have believed him, right? He's doing all these miracles. How can you not? But we weren't there, right? And it's, it's easy to say that. Um, I do that with, in the Old Testament with the, the Israelite people all the time. Man, how do they not get it? God is doing all these miracles for them, and yet they still don't get it. But you're right, Christine. We can be lifelong believers and still get in this place where we're like, man, it's so hard to believe this right now. Or it would be so much easier if Jesus would just show up and do this. Or I want him to just, you know, I, I'm, I'm so done with this. I want the, the kingdom to come. And we pray for that and long for that. And yet, Many of us, I'm sure, have also had the opposite. We're like, you know, uh, well, I hope, God, I hope Jesus doesn't come before, like, I get a chance to get married, you know, or, like, it'd be really nice if I could have at least, like, one kid before Jesus comes. He's offering, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in Revelation, he's offering perfection. And yet, maybe I'm the only one, maybe it's just me who's, who's had those thoughts, but, like, we get this idea of, okay, I just want to live a little more life before perfect eternity, like, how blasphemous does that sound? That sounds ridiculous that I think my life is so important that I just want to live a little bit more of it before Jesus' perfect kingdom comes. So it's like we want what we want. Mm. I think it's a concern, though, as 
worldwide, and we've often been praying for other countries, now it's right here. And I think with Christine, what you were saying, and also when the scriptures has been talking about even in the Revelation, there will be people that are going to say, I'm he. Hmm. We're going, we've got to be so careful to know how does this match up in the scriptures because they're going to be leading Christians away who are just uh, on the fringe, who have just gotten so, as you said, Corinthianized, <laughs> um, they can't tell the difference. I've always found that puzzling when I read that thing, the revelation that there would be. Hmm. And you got to think about the time period that you're in, I think, which I think relates kind of to what you're saying, Tamara, that, you know, for us nowadays in a more or less self-focused, atheistic, whatever you want to call it, culture as a whole, versus here where the Jewish people had been, had their lands taken over by the Romans and all of these, this endless pantheon of Roman and Greek gods talked about, worshipped in their cities, especially in a place like Corinth, as we said before, which was this thriving metropolis, this port town, people coming and going all the time. Someone else shows up and talks about, you know, more of the, it. Like, it would be easy, I think, to think, oh, this is just another, another person talking about another god that is not our god. There was, there was idolatry everywhere. There was, there was pantheism everywhere. And, uh, I mean, it's a very, different, a very different time as well. And yet, as we've been saying and understanding kind of here, how often do we do the same thing? Maybe we don't directly blaspheme God, but our actions sometimes don't uh, follow along exactly the way that we'd maybe like them to. Any other thoughts on that before we continue? Mm-hmm. How much more frustrating it is when a, a child disobeys a direct order versus doing something they didn't know any better. The Jews knew better, right, in some ways, or they ought to have. And so it's that much more frustrating to someone like Paul, who had come out of, or part of Judaism, to see these people. I think of it in anger, like, and this is theoretical, I've certainly never done this before. But, you know, in anger, when you lose your mind, you reach into that bag of knowledge to hurt someone. Hmm. Attacking his reputation. Yeah. Well, so Paul leaves uh, and goes to the Gentiles. I mean, he stays in Corinth, but left them. Verse 7. He left there, that is the synagogues, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. So he didn't go very far, just went next door. But he went there instead. 
It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. What a contrast there. He's going to the Jews and the Greeks. Then it focuses on the fact that he emphasized his time with the Jews in the synagogue, and they blatantly rejected him. They blatantly rejected God. He shakes the dust off his clothes and goes and focuses on the Gentiles, and we're given this progress report. We're a man, a leader of the synagogue, which is super interesting. So a Jewish person, <laughs> leader of the synagogue, believed with all his family, all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. It's an exciting contrast to see the difference there. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be that he's going to individual families. It could be that he's just found different people who are willing to, to share better. It doesn't say specifically whether Crispus believed because of what Paul said or if he believed already. Um, it doesn't tell us that specifically, but we know progress is happening. People in Corinth are believing and being baptized, so something is working. Hmm. The synagogue. Would it likely be people who are part of the synagogue who would have that privilege to have a house close to the hmm. I'm not super up on my ancient okay. Corinthian okay. geography. <laughs> Connected, like based on position, kind of like a parsonage, perhaps. It could be, and it could be on the opposite. It just, you know, he found someone who was nearby. So he could still be. I mean, the picture we're given is why does it? No, why does it explain this? He went to the house of a man, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And the next verse was talking about then Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed. It's I, the picture I have in my head, at least. And again, this is just Andrew's idea, but is that he found someone nearby who believed in God and worshipped God, and kind of partnered with him so that he could be preaching to people as they were coming and going, people in the area finding a new base of operations since at this point, I mean, it's hard for him to go back into the synagogue when he's shaken the dust off and said the blood is on your own heads. And so he goes the next best thing, which is just next door. <laughs> he's, That's how you wonder when you make such claim, like, I'm not going to come back, you know, I'm, you know, you guys are turning your back on, you know, the, uh, the gospel, but... Then you go straight to next door, and they are obviously Jewish people and synagogue leaders too. Wonder when he makes such a claim, some of them, like approach him. You don't know. We, they are Greek names. Mm-hmm. So we're not dealing with Jews here anymore. Oh, okay. We're dealing with
Mm-hmm. It's almost like they just like Andrew was saying this contrast. Here's the house of the Lord, which Jesus called whitewashed tombs, right? This this empty, and then next door is this little house church, almost like a mm-hmm. of Gentiles that are worshiping God, and they're right next to each other. So contrast. And so interesting, you have this person, Crispus, who, as you say, just like Greek name, or non-Jewish name at the very least, and yet a leader in the synagogue. So we, we see that there's some, you know, when it goes back to verse, uh, where was it, verse 4, that he's going into the synagogue to persuade Jews and Greeks. There's, there's a mixing that is happening. There is, there's something going on here. And I think it's so interesting that from now on I will go to the Gentiles, and then the progress report we get, are, are the next piece is it's Gentiles, but they're still connected to the synagogue, right? They're, they live next door, or they're the, a leader in the synagogue. He's still, but he's not focusing necessarily just on that Hebrew heritage anymore. Yeah, it could be. I'm not, I'm not sure if there would be. I mean, I know Corinth was uh, huge. It was a massive city. Uh, I fear probably around 200,000 people at this time. Bigger than, about four times, I think, bigger than Athens, even at this time. So maybe, perhaps, there were other synagogues. I'm not actually, again, sure if there would be more than one or not. It wouldn't surprise me if there were. Um, Hmm. So that's kind of what I took away from this too, which is that like shaking the dust or shaking his garments, like it's kind of similar to like Jesus, where the nation of Israel kind of rejected the message, but that's not to say that God is rejecting like individuals who are also Jews. That's huge, especially when we look at how the gospel started spreading in the beginning of the church. Right, the nation of Israel rejected Christ, and so He puts His kingdom on hold sort of rejecting them in a sense, and yet the, very, the church starts with Jewish people, individuals. So yeah, I think that's a really good, he's shaking it off from the, the plurality of these people who are blaspheming, but still focused on individual people and their families. Obviously, there was some more to the story, verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, something that happens a few times throughout the book of Acts, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So we don't know specifically why Paul was afraid. It doesn't tell us that. We can guess based on the scenarios that we've been reading about already, but either way, God comes from a dream and says, don't be afraid. You're not going to see harm here, for I have many people in this city. I think this is such an interesting concept. Going back to kind of what you said before, Christine, of like, what would it be like if we could just see Christ? I think it's, this is a piece of like, what would it look like today if Christ told us in a vision, there's a whole bunch of people at your workplace who are going to be my people, who are going to accept the faith? Do you think that would like motivate our evangelism if we knew that God told us there are people in your sphere of influence that are going to come to faith. Maybe not, but I think, I think that's got to be really encouraging to Paul to hear, not only am I protecting you in this city, but there are people in this city that are mine, that are coming to me. I think that's really an interesting and encouraging 
vision for him. Mm. He's always very bold, and like just like and when you read his letters too, like he's like, yeah, I'm gonna go on preaching and things like that. So it's kind of interesting, like just to see how God's like he, he obviously knew what Paul needed, or like that's when he feels like God provides for Paul as well from that mm-hmm. side where you don't necessarily see that Paul would be need to be told that, or like he seems pretty yeah faithful, but. It's another picture of Paul's humanity, as we were talking about earlier, with his frustration, right? We see he's a human being. He gets frustrated and angry when his own people reject the message. We see him getting afraid. I mean, how can you not be when we look at the things that Paul has gone through, even up to this point in Acts? Like, we're, we're talking of one of the evilest cities of the time. It's huge, and people are, you know, rejecting him and potentially threatening him, we don't, we don't know. I imagine there would be fear of what could happen. It's not surprising to me, and yet, for whatever reason, the inspiration of the, the Spirit left out the detail of what specifically he was afraid of, I think, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he was afraid of. It was just, he was afraid, and God said, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, don't be silent. Don't let your humanity or your fear get in the way of what you know you should be doing. Don't let it get in the way of the message you've been entrusted with. Don't let the rejection by these people get in the way or stop you from doing what you know you should be doing. For I am with you. I mean, that just, it, it reeks of, of Old Testament language there. Of like, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I think of Joshua especially. All throughout the, the Old Testament, how many times has God said, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And we have this, again, this almost picture of Old Testament prophet or leader going to do his job. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be silent. Don't stop your message. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Almost pointing this piece of like, I know it's been a hard start. I know people have been rejecting you. I know it hasn't maybe gone the way you want it to, but you've got to stay here because there's hope. You've got to stay here because people need to hear the message. <coughs> Pardon me. Sorry, my throat. And let me see. He settled there a year and six months. Again, we think of Paul being the traveling missionary, and he is. He gets all over the place, but he stays here for a significant amount of time, a year and six months. It's during this time that, again, he writes the letters to the Thessalonians, um, does a lot of ministry. What time is it? 14. We have 15 minutes to get through the next. The next chunk is really exciting and interesting and important, so I want to get through the next little bit at least. Uh, verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crimes, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, Look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. What do we think about this? This is an interesting story. While I take a sip of water, any responses? 
and you say, you know what, this is not, this is not a crime. His preaching about God is not a crime. So why are you bringing this to me? Yes. Mm-hmm. But yet they think that it's a crime. That they're hearing about the God that saves that that is their God, and yet they're thinking it's a crime. And there's somebody that, mm-hmm. you know, it's no big deal. Does this remind you of anything? Is it not bear similarity to Jesus and Pilate? The Jewish people bring him before the, the governor, the, the one in charge at the time, say he's doing all these things. He says he's the son of God. And Pilate's like, deal with your own stuff. And yet that goes very, very differently than here. It's the same kind of starting point. And you almost wonder if, <laughs> again, this is just Andrew's imagination here, but Paul is preaching or had been preaching to the Jewish people about the Christ that they killed. I wonder if some of them were like, well, it worked for them in Jerusalem to get rid of this guy, Jesus. Why don't we do the same thing with Paul? Why don't we just say, okay, we'll take him before the governor and say he's been doing things that are not allowed in in this culture. Um, We read that Gallia was the pro-council, which is, again, really the Roman governor in the province uh, whatever that area was. So he was on behalf of Rome and the Roman Empire. He was the one kind of in charge of that area. And so, yeah, they bring Paul before this leader, this incredibly important person, which I believe this is uh, one of the only times, if not the only time, that this happens to someone of such an, an incredible extent. Someone so powerful, hoping and saying, you know, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Interestingly enough, in my Bible at least, law is not capitalized there. It's the small l law. So they could be saying, he's introducing new religion contrary to Caesar. He's doing something that's not okay. And yet, when Paul was ready to open his mouth, again, I think back to Jesus who stayed silent, but Paul's ready to open his mouth and respond. He doesn't even have to because Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrong or vicious crimes, it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there's questions about your words, your names, your own law, look after yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. It's not that he's uninterested, but he's saying this has nothing to do with the Roman government. He doesn't picture Paul as this insurrectionist. He doesn't picture him as someone who is a threat. But he's saying, you guys are having squabbles within your own religion. Deal with it within your own house. This is not for... Like, I'm almost like this picture of, like, I'm too powerful. Like, this is, the, this is below me. This is beneath me. I don't need to worry about this. Deal with your own stuff. Get your own house in order. Super interesting, because in doing this, he's almost legitimized Christianity, at least in Corinth, or in, this, in Achaia, the province. Not specifically. He's not saying Christianity is now one of the Roman-stamped, approved religions. But he's saying it's the Roman government, at least in this province, doesn't care if you're worshiping this God. It's not a crime. I'm not going to put you to death. He's setting this, this precedent, this legal precedent, which at the time, 
the proconsuls in the different provinces would have looked to the other proconsuls for legal precedent. So in doing this, in rubber stamping this in some ways and saying, yeah, I don't care, this, doesn't, this, this new movement doesn't matter to the Roman Empire, there could have been big consequences far-reaching, but definitely in Corinth. At this point, it's completely okay for Paul to go around and preach the gospel. It's not a crime. There's nothing that they're going to do against him, which goes back to what Jesus said in the dream, right? In the vision, I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. It's this almost this prophetic vision coming through before his eyes. He's getting brought before the judge and the judge saying, yeah, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Go and do whatever you want to do. Yeah, we don't get any indication about that. I feel like if he believed in the Lord, it would have told us, perhaps. But he's definitely not anti what Paul is doing. He's not blaspheming in the same way that the Jews are. Um, he's just saying this is kind of below my pay grade. I don't really, I don't really care. Um, he's not going to allow the Jews. So whether or not we don't necessarily get the picture that he's specifically protecting Paul, as much as he's just not letting the Jewish people force his hand as Pilate ended up doing, right? He's not letting them be the boss of how he judged. He's saying, this has nothing to do with me, so you guys deal with it, because you're not going to come and make me kill this man that I have no need to kill. I mean, as was said before, Paul is a Roman citizen. I'm sure that would have come up if this went in a different direction. Um, but for now, at least, what Paul's doing is not wrong in the eyes of Rome, in some ways, is the picture we're get, getting. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Interesting, verse 17 is one that I find most fascinating in this whole section because there's a couple different interpretations there can be here. Um, it says, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. Remember, Paul's been in Corinth for a year and a half. So this could be the person that replaced Crispus or it could be someone who worked alongside Crispus um, in the synagogue. They took him and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Interesting verse for a couple of reasons. The one that I think is, again, maybe this is just Andrew finding things that are interesting that aren't, so maybe you won't care about this. But who, who do we think are the they in verse 17? And they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. That's where my head goes, too. So there's two different theories here. One is that it's a different, it is the, the Greeks or the Gentiles who would have been witnessing this judgment. So people who would have been part of maybe the, the council or part of the, 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 the judgment group that was there sees these Jewish people come in, throw Paul in front and say, this guy's against Rome. And then when the, the governor says, I don't really care about this, go and deal with your own stuff. They, uh, there was a lot of you know, anti-Semitism brewing under the surface. And maybe this is an opportunity for them to just say, yeah, Gallio doesn't care what you think, so screw you too. And then they start beating up the leader of their synagogue. A chance for them to like add a little punch on top of what the leader had already done. And giving them an opportunity to And Gallio doesn't care because, hey, maybe if they get beat up, they'll stop bothering me with these foolish issues. On the other hand, as Tamara said, I, my head goes to like, it's actually the Jewish people perhaps. Sosthenes, interestingly enough, there's the same name used at the beginning of the first letter to the Corinthians that Paul uses as a co-author, which could have been the same Sosthenes who had converted to Christ, maybe through Crispus, and the Jews are saying, 
well, the governor's gonna ha- not going to help us. We have to deal with this on our own. Well, this synagogue leader, he's betrayed the faith too. He's, going to the, he's talking about this Christ guy. We're going to do what the law says, and we're going we're gonna to beat him because he has now betrayed our faith as well. Sure, didn't defend them, didn't support. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we're seeing this blend of Jews by birth versus people who are proselytes and the Hellenists and the the leaders and and this weird blending of cultures. And so we don't really know. And again, it doesn't really matter who the they was. What we do know and what we see here is that the leader of the synagogue was beaten in front of the governor and he didn't care, despite the fact that he said earlier... um, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime. They're beating someone in the street, and he ignores it. So it's still accomplishing his ultimate goal, which is that hopefully they won't bother me with this sort of stuff anymore. They've learned their lesson. This is, again, this is beneath me. I don't need to worry about this. Yeah, exactly. It could be infighting. It could be, on the other hand, it could be Gentiles just beating up the Jewish people because they don't care. They see this, oh, the governor's on our side kind of thing. Either way, it's uh, an interesting demonstration of who this Galileo person was and what he thought was his job and not and how his authority played out. And again, how God would use this for the spreading of the gospel. I think especially if this is the same Sosthenes, who is the leader of a synagogue, who then is listed as a sort of co-author of the letter to the Corinthians in Corinth, like years later, I think that's a super interesting picture we have here. And obviously a very important narrative here of Rome's involvement with Christianity versus their connection with Judaism and the fact that at this point, they're not willing to call it sin or crime, what Paul is doing. So I think we'll stop there because we're almost time for service and we've talked a lot this morning. Um, Any other questions or things about what we talked about so far? I know we went in a lot of different directions, so it could be that we're more confused than when we started, but hopefully not. (laughs) Awesome. In terms of like having a similar background or in terms of like, are you saying like they might have known him? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's possible. He would have, this is on sort of the other side of where he would have been trained, probably not, not super close. It's possible. I mean, he got around uh, for sure. I think there would have been, could have been similar background for sure. And I think that's what makes it so interesting is what makes Paul the perfect uh, apostle to the Gentiles, is his, the fact that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet he's also a citizen of Rome in some way. He's a Roman citizen. It makes him this kind of blend of cultures. He has education. He's able to go toe-to-toe with the philosophers in Athens. Like, very educated, very interesting mix of backgrounds. And we see this coming out in the people that he's preaching to as well. Fascinating. It's, it's cool to see the redemption story. We always talk about the redemption of, you know, Paul went from killing Christians to, you know, spreading Christianity, but there's so many more layers to it than that. The way that his background and his life set him up perfectly for the job that Christ would task him with. 
I think it's a beautiful story of redemption and so encouraging, I think, for us to say, like, how is God going to use the various aspects of my life to accomplish his mission? I don't know. Cool thing to think about. Let's go and worship together. Mm-hmm.